This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Sean Powers and I talk with our old friend Kyle Rankin, who's a friend of this show as well. Kyle is super smart about all kinds of stuff, but here's the cool thing. He's a hacker that is now the president and CEO of a major company supplying Linux hardware, Purism. And they have the Purism laptop and the Librem 5 phone and a new thing called LapDoc that unites these two things. We talk about convergence and supply chain and how that affects the hardware business and all kinds of other stuff. And that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 721, recorded Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Hacking, Convergence, and Hyperpurism. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Fastmail. Reclaim your privacy, boost productivity, and make email yours with Fastmail. Try it free for 30 days at fastmail.com slash twit. Fastmail is also giving Twit listeners a 15% discount on the first year when you sign up today. And by Collide, that's Collide with a K. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. It's zero trust for Okta. Visit collide.com slash floss and book a demo today. Hello again, everybody, everywhere. I am Doc Searles, and this is Floss Weekly, brought to you this week with Sean Powers himself. Hello, hello. With, with the zero in his last name for the O. It's true, yeah. there, there are a number of you, even though your Sean is not is spelled with an H. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's, I, you know, my name like, is Sean Michael Powers. I have green hair. And my first name is spelled the least Irish way. Of- <laughs> you do have green hair and you've had it long before St. Patty's Day came along. That's true. You that did is this. true. Yeah. For those of us who are visually impaired for this show, you, you did this to celebrate your daughter? To Yeah, to support her. To support, to support her. her because but it's become now I'm like the, you know, people who leave their Christmas tree lights up all year round. <laughs> you know, come yeah, this time of year, I, I look ahead of the curve for... Uh, St. Patty's Day. Yeah, and my whole neighborhood um, here in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, it does the same thing. They leave their, I don't think they're actually Christmas lights. They're just lights that they have there, and they are they don't take them down. I don't think they're lazy. It's just kind of a look to it. But, you know, that's uh, each, each to their own. Yeah. I had a joke about it, but I forgot it, so we'll just let it go. <laughs> Fair <laughs> it, enough. It, it jumped in and then jumped out. So... So this is uh, t- today is a um, another Linux Journal reunion. We have Kyle Rankin on. Um, did you have a, a few quick words before I jump on to Kyle because we got off to a late start? I want to make sure we. No, I'm excited. We can bring Kyle in. He's part of yeah, the let's family. Bring him in. So, so, so Kyle, before you talk, I just to let the listeners know. Um, I, I, Kyle and Sean and I were have are both longstanding staffers with Linux Journal uh, back in the decade or in the decades, I think, in our cases. Um, but now he's the president of Purism, um, the maker of laptops and phones that are Linux-based, and author of Linux Hardening and Hostile Networks, uh, DevOps sh- Troubleshooting, the official Ubuntu server book, and Nopix Hacks, among other books. He was an award-winning columnist and tech editor of Linux Journal and speaks frequently on free software. So welcome. Welcome, Kyle. There's actually more to you than that, but that... 
<laughs> Usually, I want to shorten people's. <laughs> they send me three paragraphs of of of, uh, of uh, startup. So, where are you? you're in California somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Northern California, up in sort of the wine country region. Actually, not not far from the studios. Uh, oh, really? Or, oh, yeah. Petaluma, we could have had you in. Yeah, it's, it's down the street. Official it's place. down the street. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So you're in not Petaluma. You're like some other place, like Santa oh, Rosa. No, I'm, in, or, I'm no, I'm in Petaluma. So you're in Petaluma. Oh, down the street is right. Down the oh, street. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, so, so. Um, why don't we just start with what you're doing now? Where's where's Purism at? I, last I heard, the whole hardware industry was was struck by supply chain issues and stuff like that. What's going on now? Oh, I mean, it's that's still the case. It's I I liken it. The last couple of years have sort of been what everyone experienced at the beginning of the pandemic when you went to the grocery store and you couldn't find toilet paper, and then you went to the second grocery store and you also couldn't find toilet paper. Um, and then a couple of people bought up all the toilet paper and then was reselling it for a markup on Craigslist. That's basically been the hardware chip supply chain market for like the last three years, really. Um, it hit us earlier than a lot of people. I think we felt it sooner. Um, and it, it's continues. I mean, even to this day, we've, we've gotten ahead of it for the most part now, but it's taken a couple of years to get there. A lot of, we've had to basically change how we, uh, build hardware in many cases where uh, we're focused more on like a lot of people sort of doing away with just in time supply chain. Uh, a lot of, you know, it made sense for the longest time to just, we're, we're shipping through this many units in a certain amount of time. Let's make sure that when we ship through those, the next batch is just arriving and to ship through and just continue manufacturing like that. Well, this doesn't make any sense anymore because you may go to manufacture another batch and find out um, some does, random chip that's not even necessarily uh you wouldn't think it's very important like a little four dollar chip somewhere uh that is you can't build anything until you have it and it's on back order for two years or something like that and so uh that's been that's been uh our life for the last couple of years is is just struggling with all of that stuff i mean it's it started with big things like the cpu for our phone uh happened to be the same cpu that's popular in automotive infotainment uh, systems. And, you know, if you look at the news, you've seen what a struggle the auto industry has had procuring chips and they've had to, you know, pause production and things like that. Well, we, we've also been fighting for the same chips. And so in many cases, what we had to do, we're fortunate in that we're um, like us, our needs are small enough and we're a small enough company with enough in in-house talent that in some cases, like we'll have a chip that uh, is in short supply and we can, our engineers can figure out an alternative uh, that's basically the same thing with a slightly different skew. We can find that in other cases, we've just had to bite the bullet and buy way more expensive, you know, that, that toilet paper that the person was selling in Craigslist at <laughs> like a, you know, a 50% markup, a hundred percent markup. Uh, we've been buying that toilet paper just because we needed the toilet paper. <laughs> uh, so it's been like, it's been crazy. Uh, we're starting, I mean, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we just, I mean, it, it's funny, like just recently we, we just, we're finishing the last production run for that we have planned right now for the Libra 5 phone. And it seemed like everything was, all of the ducks were in a row and we had all of the chips that we needed and everything. And then we go, we start, we get ready to start production. It turns out, oh, well, no, not in this case. We still have a couple of these chips that we 
thought we had, but then they're in short supply and can't get them now. And so like, it's been, it's been crazy. Uh, but again, it's, I, I see that lessening probably next year. Now, if you were to ask me last year, I would have said, yeah, I think sometime in the 2023, the chip supply chain crunch will settle down. But now I probably another year, just because it's, it's not spread evenly distributed. You know, what happens is everyone will scramble to make particular chips to su- supply a demand. Well, when they're doing that, they're not making other ones. And when something leaves a shelf, it may not be restocked for a while. So yeah, it's, it's been crazy. So I'm curious if, you know, trying to take the, the positive spin on a miserable situation for everyone, have you found, I mean, you, I hope you elaborate in a little bit here. I know you do a lot of the um, manufacturing stuff, but have you found some, I guess, innovation to use the, the buzzwords, right? Uh, or changes that you've made because of the ongoing uh, shortages, like uh, we're doing this or we're focusing more on on that? Or has it just been like a hurry up and wait and, you know, oh my gosh, it's toilet paper, grab it and, and do what we can? Or, I mean, has it been all bad news or is there any sort of uh, uh, systems that you've been able to invent or put in place to make things a little bit uh, smoother or more resilient? Because honestly, it's it's pointed out a lot of uh, struggles that our, our uh, supply chain system has uh, in it, in that when a, a hiccup can cause so many issues across so many uh, landscapes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, it, a couple of things, what, it, what it's meant for us in one case is that we, um, as much as possible have done away with just in time supply. Uh, so we stock way more inventory than we used to, uh, just because there could be a disruption where we get, we find out that there's, you know, some missing parts, some missing something, some, um, lockdown somewhere. And then we have a three month delay in something that we needed, you know, last month kind of thing. So we've been addressing that a lot by just stocking more. I mean, that's the downside to that is then you have to have, you, know, you have way more cash invested in inventory than if you're just sort of cycling through as you need it. Uh, but we've had to do that for pretty much every product is, is once we start having it in stock, we're trying to stock way more than we traditionally would because you can't necessarily count on, um, the supply chain to be consistently delivering as fast as it always has been. So that's one thing. I mean, the other thing that's been beneficial, I guess, is having, having to take more time to build the hardware in particular, the phone has meant more time to um, develop the software as well to get it to a, to a better place because, you know, in, in many cases for this phone, we're building a lot of stuff sort of from scratch ourselves in house because there's there before um, we sort of announced the project, there, most of the approaches for mobile, like Linux on a mobile device, was a mobile only uh, and mobile focused distribution. So they would, it might it would be Linux, but the applications were specifically ported for a mobile platform. So it would be designed to fit there. So if you're a developer, you would write a specific mobile only version of your app to run on these platforms. Uh, in our case, we were, we wanted to do something different and have it be basically run the same desktop applications. They just fit when you shrink them down to fit on the phone screen. And that required, you know, developing new libraries that have now been upstreamed into GNOME, um, developing software like phone applications uh, to make actual phone calls, imagine that, and that run on desktop Linux as well. And th- all, all those sorts of things needed to be developed and a new shell, a new desktop shell because GNOME shell wasn't, at the time, um, mobile aware, really. And so all of these sorts of things had to 
someone had to make them and we were in a position to do it. And that's what pretty much all of the proceeds from um, selling these phones went to was all of the software development to uh, get mobile Linux where, or you know, adaptive or convergent Linux, I guess, where it is today, which is you, you know, you have a, quite a few applications and all the new GNOME applications are sort of being developed with this in mind where uh, you can, uh, they are adapt to a phone screen, they get adapt to a large screen. Um, and the libraries are sort of built into libadwaita, which is a, a major library that people would use when they're developing GTK applications now. Um, it's just sort of built in. So like the default approach is one that makes an adaptive application, which is sort of good for everybody, even if you don't use it on a phone. Well, I want to ask uh, uh, about the the laptop and and, and your, how this actually unifies your product lines. But before we get to that, I'll let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by FastMail. Free email isn't free, and you pay with your privacy. For over 20 years, FastMail has been a leader in email privacy. At FastMail, your data stays yours with better productivity features for as little as $3 a month. FastMail prioritizes your privacy. Your personal data is kept safe and away from third parties with better spam filters and absolutely no ads. All FastMail data is stored in the U.S. and FastMail is fully GDPR compliant. Masked email protects your personal data by allowing you to create multiple addresses to use when you sign up for various websites. And privacy isn't all you get with FastMail. Customize your workflow with colors, custom swipes, night mode, and more. Organize your inbox with scheduled send, snooze, folders, labels, search bar, etc. Plus, Keep track of all the important details in your life easily with FastMail's powerful sidebar. Gives you the ability to send and receive emails from your own domain and manage multiple email addresses in one space, which helps keep you organized and protects your personal data. Works with password managers like Bitwarden and 1Password to make it easy for you to create unique passwords for every account and safely store them on your device. It's great on laptop and mobile especially when you download the FastMail app to get the most out of your email. The FastMail app is the best place to try all their newest features and will always be the most up-to-date. FastMail has a U.S.-based support team full of email experts that are always within reach to put you first. The FastMail team believes in working for customers as people to be cared for, not products to be exploited. Advertisers are left out putting you and your privacy at the center. Check out these reviews. I use FastMail because it's super fast and cares deeply about privacy and doing the right thing. And FastMail rocks. It's secure, private, independent, and has a Gmail transfer tool. You won't regret this move. Another one, I test drove several services but settled on FastMail years ago, and I couldn't be happier. I use it for my entire family as well as a separate plan for my business. And don't worry about losing information. It's easy to download your old data and import it into your new FastMail inbox. No need to leave important info behind when you switch. FastMail is moving email forward with new internet standards and open source innovations that power many email services other than their own. Don't get left behind by substandard email providers. Reclaim your privacy, boost productivity, and make email yours with FastMail. Try it free for 30 days at fastmail.com slash twit. That's fastmail.com slash twit. FastMail is also giving twit listeners 
a 15% discount on the first year when you sign up today. Okay, so Kyle, you've got a new thing called um, LapDoc, and because we haven't covered it yet, you you make a laptop and a phone. You were mentioning the Librem 5 earlier. That's your phone. Uh, tell us more about them and, and now pull us in together with LapDoc and how that's going. Yeah, I mean, so this, at least for me personally, started, I found out now over 10 years ago because I read a Linux Journal article that I wrote 10 years ago where I was talking about uh-huh. sort of my dream at the time, which was so slightly before that, maybe a year before that even, I was at a conference and I saw someone with an N800 series, little little tablet portable computer at the time. It was like very, it ran Linux. It was this, this cool little what? device. It was the Nokia. The Nokia yeah, the Nokia. It, yeah, they yeah, were cool. In, yeah, they I were really in a cool. drawer over there in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and they were at the conference, and I I saw them. They had that screen. They popped out like a little a little portable keyboard and started typing. I'm like, you know, that's that's the future is having your computer that has all of your applications in your pocket there, and then you could plug it into a big screen, and it could be a big computer, or you could keep it in your pocket and use a small screen. And ever since I was wanting that solution to exist. And so like 10 years ago, the closest that you could get was a Android device, like a Droid 4 in my case, plugged into this Motorola made this docking station that you could dock the phone into. And it essentially uh, ran, at first it ran sort of this pseudo Linux environment. And then later it basically just ran Android bigger. Uh, And it, it wasn't exactly what I wanted really but it was close it's like this is if i can only get linux to run on this it would be amazing so no. like yeah kyle is it this is the same time though when i mean you and i both had the uh, the nokia n900 i think we got it at scale uh, mm-hmm. years and years ago wasn't there something already was it the atrix or, or something that sound a, a something yeah the atrix that's that's the dock i had but i so motorola released like this atrix phone Oh, so that was the Motorola device, was the Atrix? Yeah, yeah. and then their dock was compatible with, for example, I had a Motorola Droid 4, and they had this little um, mini like micro USB and a micro HDMI connector on the side that you would slide, you sort of dock it into the stocking station. And in the case of the Droid, it was, for some reason, they decided to make it backwards, so you had to actually open up the dock and, and flip it around or whatever. But yeah, so I, back then, the thing is, is no one really used it. Uh, so I got mine, like it was a, it was a whole thing. And then I got mine like a couple of years after it fell out of favor for like $69. You like not used brand new, but just, you know, surplus device on a fire sale. Uh, and I think like looking back, I think the reason that it never really took off was because it wasn't doing what I kind of call real convergence or true convergence where what it was, it wasn't taking your computer and putting it in your pocket as much as it was taking a little phone and putting it you know, and, and just making it bigger, you know, so like phone apps are not really designed to be, um, I mean, they are now on a tablet, they're bigger, but it's, they're mostly designed to be on a small screen, you know, so having them on a big screen, you don't get the same experience. But what most people I think want with convergence is I want to, I want my desktop to follow me around. I want my same comp- apps I use on my desktop to be in my pocket and all, my, all of my data too. So like, fast forward to now, uh, for the last basically two years, I've been prototyping a lot of different uh, lap docks, which are basically um, a, sort of a, a trade name for a docking station that is in a laptop shell. So it has no CPU of its own, no RAM or anything. It's just a battery, 
a keyboard, a mouse in a screen and ports that you can connect to your phone. So when you connect to your phone, um, the phone sees it as another display, sees a USB hub that has a keyboard and a mouse in it. And you can type on the keyboard and use the mouse and everything works like you would expect. And it, it makes it, it makes it seem like your phone is now a laptop. Uh, you can use it just like one. Well, in the case of, you know, before you would use that, if you weren't using it with the Librem 5 uh, and you're using, say, Android, you would, it be, would be more like using a tablet, I guess, because you would be using the same phone apps. In our case, I've been demoing this out because it sort of demonstrates all of the work we've been putting into conversions, which is when I tell people I'm not running mobile Firefox, I'm running desktop Firefox with all of the desktop Firefox plugins I want. And there's no better way to, to demonstrate that than to have your phone, you dock it into the docking station, it sees both displays, and then I drag Firefox over to the big display, and then you see, oh, wait, it morphed into the full-size regular desktop Firefox. And the same thing's true for a lot of other applications, where if you're used to standard GNOME applications, it's really kind of neat seeing them on a small screen and then drag them over like, oh, wait, that's what you know files looks like when it's on a big screen. So... For the last couple of years, I've been trying out different solutions to see, you know, I, I've been wanting to offer this uh, on our site for a long time because I really think it showcases the best features of the Librem 5. But I wanted to have one that I, I felt good about recommending. So I've tried all kinds of different docs out there. And there's a, there's a I mean, it's a small segment of, of technology. You know, there's only a handful out there. But uh, all, of all of them, uh, the one I kept going back to that I liked the most was made by uh, Next. It's called the Nextdoc 360. It's like a little, um, it's, it can, it's one of those 360 degree, it can fold into a tablet kind of devices. Uh, and the way that I found myself using it was I would get a little magnetic mount and uh, mount it to the back so that I could dock. When I docked my phone, it was at the same level at the top of the screen with the top of the screen of the laptop. So it turned it into basically two displays. Um, and I used it that way. So I, you know, I, I decided two years ago now to start an experiment where I said, well, what if I replaced my personal laptop? My work laptop has a couple of other obligations. I can't necessarily try it with that yet, but for my personal laptop, what if I uh, took the, if I just replaced my Librem 13 at the time laptop with a laptop in my Librem 5 phone, what would that be like? So I tried it out for a month and it, works surprisingly well. The things that I do on my personal computer are, you know, answer emails, browse the web, watch videos, chat, things like that. Um, I'm not doing like video editing or things like that on my personal laptop. And it worked out really great for a month. And so I figured, well, maybe I will try this experiment a little bit longer. And a year later, I was still using it. And now two years later, I mean, that's just what I, what I use. I mean, that's my personal computer now is a phone connected to a laptop. And I found it to be just incredibly convenient. So all that to say, after trying out a couple of different solutions, we basically packaged up essentially what I use on a daily basis, the, um, the Nextdoc 360, a um, magnetic mount so you can mount it to the back of it so it's very easy to mount the phone uh, so you, you can actually use it on your lap, and then a, a shorter USB cable because I found like there's, there's a really nice long USB cable that comes with the Nextdoc. But I found it's much more convenient to have like a little short uh, USB-C cable that's just long enough to reach up uh, and allows enough space for you to fold it backwards into a tablet if you want to. So, yeah, so that's what we have. Um, we just put it on the site a couple of weeks ago. 
And so far, there's been a lot of, I mean, there's been surprising amount of interest in that solution. I think because a lot of people, I think a lot of people have the same wish that I did, which is, wouldn't it be so cool if you just had this one computer that you kept with you and it could be a desktop computer, it could be a laptop, it could be a phone, it could be whatever you want. Uh, And I think that's, a lot of people want that. And so there's a lot of technologies that have sort of promised that in one way or the other, but because of how they did it, either by just making everything mobile only and stretched to fit the screen or whatever, it hasn't really achieved the promise that it was supposed to. But I think now the solution does. <laughs> we were furiously talking to each other on the back channel here. Um, I, I actually, the, the topic here is, maybe it's relevant, maybe it's not, which is um, with the magnets, magnets close to machinery. And uh, I'm always afraid the random iPad or something else with a strong magnet on it sits next to a hard drive. You don't have that problem, obviously. Your, your, pure, your purism and your Librem phone are uh, immune to that issue. But if you ever spoke to about magnets, might as well ask the question. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that was a bigger concern back in the day of spinning platters and things, uh, just because there's a chance that you might you might pull on that platter or pull on the read head or and write head while it, while it's spinning. In fact, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Bill Childers, uh, had something like that happen to one of his computers one time, where uh, he had a, a, a external, but this is back in the day, an external rotating drive that he plugged in via USB, and he put some sort of magnet on it. Um, accident, not accidentally, but he just sort of put it on there haphazardly. And I joked with him, oh man, you're going to break your, your hard drive. And he just sort of laughed about it. And then later on took the magnet off. And then sure enough, two days later, um, that USB hard drive was making the click of death. Uh, so it had some sort of effect, but you no, know, I've, I've used it on, I don't, there's nothing to my knowledge that the magnet would affect negatively on the Librem five. Like I've been using this solution for two years now. Um, and it is a strong magnet. Uh, it has to be because you're holding something up vertically, you know, and just a little bit of friction, um, other than the magnetic force to hold it, hold it on. Um, but it holds it very securely. So it's a very strong magnet. Uh, but yeah, I haven't had any adverse effects on my own phone at least. Yeah. And I think these days, my goodness, every phone has magnets. I mean, you know, like Doc, you mentioned the iPad, you know, they have magnetic mounts for, uh, pencils. I think the new iPhones have magnetic stuff, uh, for, uh, sticking to uh, either to their battery case or to charging. It, it's it's pretty ubiquitous everywhere now. But again, well, Doc and I are kind of old. So, you know, I mean, I <laughs> I'm, I still remember putting a magnet too close to my monitor and, you know, having to degauss it because the the CRT started to have a psychedelic rainbow effects on the side. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the magnet panic that Doc and I both think about when we think, oh, strong magnets, get it away from everything. Uh, I don't know that that's an issue anymore. I guess I, I do. I don't know how that works with uh, credit cards. I guess a super strong magnet, if it's still using the magnetic strip, which is also going by the wayside, but you know, it's still on most cards. I don't know. I, I think that's just a, we're old, so we, we shouldn't have to worry about it. Magnets aren't scary anymore. Well, and when you think about how wireless charging works, you know, on a phone now, it's yeah. very strong mag- magnetic fields, essentially, to my understanding. So, Yeah. <laughs> so too long didn't read Doctor old. <laughs> um, so um okay so so you sell the purism um laptop and you sell the phone 
Um, is there one bottle of each? There are multiple models of each. I want to get a, more of an idea of what your product line is. And you sell the lap thing too as well, right? Yeah. So we have, uh, right now we sell, uh, we have one laptop in our product line, like a Leben 14. It's a 14 inch laptop. Uh, and we sell two, we have two phone models. We have a Librem 5 and then a Librem 5 USA, which has made in USA electronics. Other than, other than where the electronics are manufactured, the, the chip per chip, it's identical and it's running the same OS and everything. Uh, we also have like a, a mini computer it's, that's, you know, it would sit on your desktop or some people use them as like myself, use them as home servers as well. And then we, um, we have in the past offered a sort of a one U two U server product that we're looking to to resume soon, uh, but there's <laughs> that's another example of where supply chain is kicked in. You have a you have a product line and like it just disappears from the supply chain. You can't get it anymore. So we've been researching alternatives, and then now um, the laptop kit, which is you know sort of we're promoting it right now to connect just to your phone and turn your phone into a laptop. But it does work with the with the Librem 14 laptop too as a second display. If you wanted to bring a secondary display, you can just sort of plug it in over USB-C and use it as a second display. But again, the for us, at least for starters, we're sort of promoting this as primarily for the Librem 5, just because it it unlocks all of this stuff that the Librem 5 can do that you may not know that it can do if you just use it as a phone. For instance, there's all there's like thousands of applications. It runs all the same, it runs the same OS as our laptop. And it has access to all the same applications. But if you're on a phone screen, only a subset of those applications actually fit on the screen and are touchscreen friendly as far as input goes. But if you connect it to a docking station or a lap dock, then you can run all of those other applications full screen like GIMP or LibreOffice or any. There's plenty of other applications that can benefit from a lot more screen real estate. And they're all installable um, on the Librem 5, and they're the same applications that we have on the on our laptop. But um, with the laptop, you can you know use all these other applications from running directly from your phone that you didn't know that you had access to, maybe. Um, so that I mean that's the reason we're mostly promoting it, at least for now with the Librem 5 because I think it's just this great combination. Now you have uh, you know you're you're actually solving the shortcomings and the problems that you. Uh, have experienced with, you know, like, oh, some things work, some things don't work. Uh, so, I mean, you're you're developing the software to go with the hardware so that it does exactly what you want, which is a pretty great way to go about doing it. But uh, are there, you know, there are there are certainly some things that uh, have caused you issue with your uh, with your uh, experiment, so to speak. Now, and, and my my comparison here is when uh, for some students, a Chromebook is a perfect choice. Uh, you know, if they want something very inexpensive, uh, they want to be able to browse the web, run some, you know, web-based apps. And I mean, there's more and more Chrome apps available. So a, a very cheap Chromebook is is a good solution for some people, but it has things that are uh, prohibitive for certain types of tasks. And what sort of pain points have you found uh with this convergence idea, whether with the existing doc or with, uh, you know, the the system that you're setting up and are they issues that you think are going to be able to be programmed away either by you or by the community as it hopefully grows or what do you think, what do you think the path forward looks like? Yeah. So th probably the first one um, would be getting applications to be mobile friendly or adaptive, aware of functional with a small screen and touchscreen friendly. So the Linux desktop 
forever has not really been focused that much. There's been people throughout that have been trying to move everyone in that direction, but it hasn't um, up until, up until recently, really a, a lot of it was our pushing to get some of this done and other people within the community that weren't with purism also pushing to get this done uh, to make applications that way. So it's better now than it was say two years ago when I first started this experiment. But what we would find is there, there were programs that were just almost there. You know, like it would, you could put them on a mobile screen and they would mostly fit. And then you would go to a settings window and then the settings window would bleed over the edge of the screen and maybe you couldn't see it. Um, there's a lot of little sort of paper cuts like that, that in many cases when we can, we've gone through and refined it. And then with a lot of the new, the fact that a lot of the libraries that we've helped develop to make it easy to develop these kinds of applications are out there. Um, newer applications are starting to be sort of adaptive by default, which is great. But yeah, that's probably the biggest pain point is you want to use an application that you're used to using on a desktop and you launch it and it doesn't fit yet. It, it's sort of, I'd liken it to where we were as in on the web, maybe, you know, 15 years ago, when mobile people started browsing the web with a mobile device and websites weren't um, what they call responsive web design. We call it adaptive because responsive makes you think of speed instead of, you know, fitting the screen. But what we now call responsive web design, which is if you're on a, a phone, it knows you're on a phone, or even if it doesn't know, it knows the dimensions of the screen and the website looks good on whatever size screen you happen to have it beyond. Well, it, the web didn't start out like that, you know, 15 years ago. Um, everyone was developing for a sort of a set desktop screen. And so if you were browsing the web on a mobile device, you either ran, I mean, that's one of the reasons for the prevalence of all these sort of mobile apps was it was easier in some cases for people to make an app to use their website instead of making their website adaptive for the phone. We're running into the same thing. I mean, we're at the same place now um, with desktop applications that, as the web was 10, 10, 15 years ago with having apps or having the websites fit. And everyone now I would say is, you know, everyone, the web is better now, better designed since everyone's taking into account uh, having uh, websites adapt to whatever screen they happen to be on. And I think desktop applications will be better for factoring that into. But yeah, that's, that's the first pain point I would say is having applications you want to use that haven't yet been updated to fit on the screen in every you know, every month or two, we're, we and other people in the community are helping to update those to make them fit better. Um, I guess one of the other, I mean, that's the, that's the main one, honestly, that I, I hit the most is, and these days, not as much just because the applications I've sort of settled into, um, one of the, my selection criteria is whether it's adaptive or not. Um, and for the most part, the applications I want to use are the only thing I run into every now and then is even websites that just sort of assume you're on like a 12 core laptop with 32 gigs of RAM. And then there's all, like all of these ads and crazy things flying by that's using up all your resources that sometimes uh, uh, I've run into that. And just having, I guess, having good browser plugins and that turned a lot of that stuff off helps a lot. I've noticed if you tell a website that you're a phone, um, even if you're a desktop, if you tell it you're a phone, you will get a much faster, smoother <laughs> website in most cases from, from people. I, I know Doc has uh, something that he wants to, to tease here, but I, did, I had a quick question before we change topics. So I, I saw the videos that uh, Ant put on the screen while uh, we were talking, and the transitions between the phone and the desktop or lap dock or whatever the terminology is, is just smooth as butter. 
is the stuff that you're doing depending on Wayland or does it use uh, X window still or, or what is the, uh, what is the underlying system or requirements that you're using or, or is it, does it just not matter? Is it just another uh, desk or just another screen? Yeah. So we're using Wayland, but yeah, it's to answer your question. It's just another screen. So when you plug the phone into the lap dock, it, it's just like you plugged it into a USB docking station with a, a monitor on the other side. It just sees a screen that's a certain size in a keyboard and a mouse and it, and you open up your display settings and you can see it sees two screens. And you can decide the orientation and everything else, just like you were plugging it into a monitor. Now, to make all of that work with the phone, our phone shell has some knowledge of how to, um, it, it can be, for example, touchscreen aware because the laptop screen is a touchscreen. And so we have a little tweaks application that once you plug it in for the first time, you tell um, our shell, our phone shell, um, hey, this is a not just a display, but it's a touchscreen. And once you do, then it knows, okay, well, my touch, if you touch the screen, it'll send events. And then you can start using it like a touch screen and, you know, scroll down and touch your laptop screen, which still feels kind of weird to me. Um, cause I'm not used to, yeah, I always, always was always worried about smudges, but, um, yeah, so you can just use it like a regular touch screen, but yeah, it's, it's Wayland, but there's nothing really special about it other than, um, it knows it's a display port, display port, USB-C screen. Okay, so you're using Wayland, but it isn't necessarily like uh, specific Wayland technology. Exactly. Yeah, there's it's such a thing. Okay. Yeah, it's just it sees a screen. You plugged in a, U- a screen over USB C. Okay. Cool. Boy, there's 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 so many <laughs> avenues to to go down here, and I want to go to some things we've been talking about for years. I want to revisit again around hacker culture, um, but first I have to tell everybody that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures unsecured devices can't access your apps. Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, Collide can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Think about it. Your identity provider only lets known devices log into apps, but just because a device is known doesn't mean it's in a secure state. In fact, plenty of the devices in your fleet probably shouldn't be trusted. Maybe they're running on an out-of-date OS, or maybe they've got unencrypted credentials lying around. If a device isn't compliant or isn't running the Collide agent, it can't access the organization's SaaS apps or other resources. The device user can't log into your company's cloud apps until they've fixed the problem on their end. It's that simple. For example, a device will be blocked if an employee doesn't have an up-to-date browser. Using end-user remediation helps drive your fleet to 100% compliance without overwhelming your IT team. Without Collide, IT teams have no way to solve these compliance issues or stop insecure devices from logging in. With Collide, you can set and enforce compliance across your entire fleet, Mac, Windows, and Linux. Collide is unique in that it makes device compliance part of the authentication process. When a user locks in with Okta, Collide alerts them to compliance issues and prevents unsecured devices from logging in. It's security you can feel good about because Collide puts transparency and respect for users at the center of their product. To sum it up, Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash floss to learn more 
or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash floss. Uh, so Kyle, you know, when you're, when you were talking about, um, you know, pretty much everything you offer there and that you've got servers, you know, are among in your product line and you run them at home. Um, I'm remembering, and I talk about this too often, probably, but you know, I used to have servers under my desk, you know, my mail server, my web server, um, with Linux journal, we had a server that was a Linux journal one where we, I'd put an article on there and a cron job to push in the middle of the night. But I had a static IP address of my own and pretty much all hackers. And I'm not, wasn't one of them, but kind of more of an amateur there. But, um, we, we lived in a world back in the nineties where we had full independence as, as individuals on the internet. And we're back, we're in clouds now and we're, we're one or two steps away while in the meantime, and you've talked about this at, at a, at a, a conference we were at a couple of years ago or maybe three or four years ago in, in Bristol about what's how far we've gotten from that, that original state where we had a sense of autonomy and agency and the rest of it. And I'm wondering what hope there is to get back to it. Cause you're probably close to closer to providing tools for that than anybody else I know. I think that there is more of an interest over the last even six months of people having more autonomy, more control over the technology they use on the web. There's been more concern recently I've seen of from people about how everything is consolidated into one or two services. And those services are things that, um, that are controlled by like a single company or something. So, uh, for example, there's been a big influx into Mastodon recently uh, because people wanted an alternative that that was to Twitter that was federated, and I think along with that interest, like people started seeing, wait, if something is owned by um, a company or an individual, then they can make decisions uh, regardless of how they may affect customers. Uh, there's sort of a cycle often with companies where. At the beginning, they will create a service online that's very popular because the goal is to get as many users as possible early without a plan yet to monetize them. Uh, then it gets rapid growth and a lot of people start using it. And then eventually they need to figure out ways to turn those free users into um, revenue in some way. And often it's at the expense of the, the user. And I think a lot of people that were embracing all of those services after the heyday that we're talking about hadn't yet experienced like we experienced in the early nineties, the problems with vendor lock-in and the problems, if you have everything hosted and controlled by a single company that they can just sort of make, make decisions without your consent necessarily or your control. And you don't really have an alternative. Uh, the there's because a lot of people these days that didn't experience that when we did are experiencing it, experiencing it now there's been a lot more interest in, well, hey, maybe maybe we should have more open protocols in general uh, for things that we rely on, at least, you know, whether it's social media, uh, all the different types of social media services. I've seen a lot of people um, interested in, well, maybe we should resume doing blogs or even things like RSS, which, you know, many of us are still, are still using now, but a lot of people sort of abandoned. Uh, people are saying, well, you know, actually, there's there's something to be said for having a universal service or universal protocol that you can choose the client that is consuming it and you don't necessarily have to 
um, use a, a client that is owned by a particular company to consume this this data, whatever it is. So yeah, I'm I have more hope um, in the last year than I have in the past, just because I'm seeing I'm seeing more interest. I I felt like what had some of the things that have happened over the last six months with regards to social media, I think had to happen before people would be uncomfortable enough to seek uh, an alternative that maybe isn't as well polished and definitely isn't um, designed to keep your attention necessarily. Like there's, there's not, I don't think anyone at Mastodon is, is hired a psychologist to figure out how to make the interface more addictive or whatever, you know, um, they're not, that's not really the focus. It's sort of the focus is sort of the opposite of that, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I have more hope now because I'm seeing more interest in people saying, you know, it's not, it's worth having more control over the technology that I, I use because I had to, you know, a lot of people are saying I had to abandon ship and move. I've already had to migrate to something else. And if I'm going to do that, I want to migrate to something that I have more uh, say over. And something that you could migrate instead of, you know, it's not your data. So, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, I I, I think I, I see also, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily servers under desks. I think it just has to be uh, not tied to uh, specific companies where other, where stuff <laughs> is um, owned by somebody uh, and your data is owned by somebody else. You know, it can be just an open protocol. I think you know, and exactly. that's that's what you're saying. I, I know mm-hmm. that you weren't saying any anything other than uh, that. But I mean, yeah, like personally, I host a lot of stuff. You know, at a I call it my micro data center, my farm, where I have you know commercial fiber. But I, we don't have to have that in order to have a a healthier, more uh, distributed, uh, migratable way to handle our data. Yeah, and the, I think the standard of could you host it under your desk? Um, if the answer is yes, then it's it's not so much whether you're hosting it under your desk, but whether you could, if you if you had the capability and chose to, could you? And if the answer is that you could, then you have an open protocol that you don't have to host under your desk. There's there will be plenty of other providers that if they see a market reason to provide it, they will do that. I mean that that goes for email. I mean some people host their own email, plenty of people do not. But the fact that it's an open standard means you have a choice and there's all kinds of providers out there offering that choice. The same thing, for example, WordPress, you know, the people who want to use that as, for website development can host their own instance, or they can use one of the already the hosting environments that other providers offer and just sort of, and there's competition in that space because of that. And it also means you can import, you can take your data from your hosted at your own instance and move it to a hosted instance if you need more resources or whatever, or vice versa, if you want to take it in-house. Uh, yeah, that's the benefit. It's, it's not really about hosting it yourself. It's more just one of the tests for this is, could you host it yourself and if you had the know-how and, and hardware? And if so, then, you're, hey, we're looking at an open protocol. So I'm I'm wondering, um, is this sort of a more general version of or angle on that same broad topic of where is hacker culture now um, in general and how has it changed over the years? Um, because uh, hacker culture way back was you're doing everything on your desk and you're doing everything in your basement or wherever else it is. And uh, um you were, say, you were saying, and Sean was saying too, you move a lot of stuff into the into clouds. But what's it about now? And, and because, and especially how you're seeing people using your gear that you're selling them, 
I don't know if you have any much of a window into what happens to your stuff after it's been sold, because I know you don't spy on people, and a lot of other people do, companies do. Where's yeah. it at now? Yeah, I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of our own experience would just be anecdotal from people who who choose to to contact us later and tell us how they're using the products. I have some sense just from support requests that I've helped with over the years, sort of where some of our customers are. But so as far as, well, I'll, I'll take a step back and talk about hacker culture to begin with. So I, right now I would say hacker culture as it is, is much, much, much more diverse than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, because technology is far more accessible um, technology these days is part of every single person's life when they, you know, if they're in the, in the past, it might be, if you want to go into certain businesses, you may need to then learn how to use a computer and get some level of computer literacy. But, you know, 30 years ago, that wasn't necessarily a given. And so people who were focused on computer programming and that sort of thing were a subset of the population just because it wasn't a ubiquitous thing, but now everyone grows up using technology and they're exposed to it constantly. And technology as a result is way more um, accessible than it was 30 years ago when the only people using a particular technology were the geeks that were writing that software, for instance. Now there's an assumption that you need to have things that are friendly to use, that are convenient um, and are accessible to everybody. And so the culture is reflecting that now. You know, to the point that, you know, computer programming is now almost is like shop class in the 1970s, where there's this assumption that you need to go to you need to take your computer programming class in high school so that you have at least an option for a, a well-paying job when you get out of school. You know, um, whether that will bear out over the long term, who knows? But but that's at least where we are today, where, you know, your average your average student in whatever school is now being exposed to computer literacy, not just using a computer, but writing software for it because it's so much more accessible. Um, and I think that's what's caused, and that was part of um, my talk in uh, Bristol, was the culture clash that this is, has caused because traditionally you have a, a very, you know, traditionally geeky, nerdy culture because you kind of had to be, you had to have some of those attributes um, and a certain level of, of aversion to socializing to, to be, uh, to get into uh, computer programming in particular, a lot of this technology many years ago. Uh, that's not true anymore. So you have sort of that culture still exists and it has been involved in free software, for instance, forever. But there's also just more popular culture because all of this stuff is now mainstream. I mean, your average person now is talking about what's going on on the internet, what's going on with technology and writing, in some cases, writing software and learning to do it in high school or middle school, elementary school, even in some cases. So that culture is more of just sort of like the, the, the average culture. I liken it to, and, and the clash is a result of, I think, I likened it, I think, in the talk to um, some, some uh, geeks throwing a D&D &D party. And the word gets out that there's this really cool party uh, at this person's house. And then all of the, everyone else in high school, all the jocks show up and turn it into a kegger. And then there's this conflict. Um, and I think that we're still seeing that conflict sort of bear out today in the free software community, but I think in the tech community at large, where every, everyone, uh, just uh, the, like across the spectrum, um, are involved in technology now. And there's a, it, it's a culture clash just because they're, they all come from different backgrounds and have different expectations. That's interesting. And uh, using you personally as an example, I mean, the, the last time we were at a conference together, you were wearing a pirate T-shirt. And, uh, you know, you were, 
you were considered pretty, you know, cutting edge uh, hacker life. Now you are the president of a company. I mean, that's it's become part of just standard culture, like like you said. And so is there I mean, that, that does mean that since standard culture is now uh, including what used to be specialized nerdy geekdom for lack of buzzwords, uh, if that's part of the standard culture, is there now a fringe that has kind of taken over as that subset? And I, I don't expect for you to be able to identify that even because, you know, I mean, you're now the president of a company, right? But I'm curious. I mean, there must be some, uh, what happens at DEFCON, right? What happens at DEFCON now, I guess is my question, because that, that used to be the, the kind of, uh, people that you more than me, uh, were, you know, back in, you know, a decade or two ago, uh, is there still that, that fringe group that is the, the elite nerds or has culture just become that? I think there's definitely like that culture remains. There's still, I mean, most of those people are still around, <laughs> you know, they, right. they, and they still have the same sensibilities for the most part that they did in the past. Uh, and that, and that even among younger people who are entering into the, this, this field or entering into this community, I think there are still people that are like that for sure. It's more, it's more of an and than an or or whatever. There's still a fringe of people that are super nerdy, super geeky, um, socially awkward and, you know, and have issues with talking to people. I mean, it took me forever to go to a conference and be able to go to a room where I didn't already know people and dared to strike up a conversation. I mean, this is an achievement over the last like five years, maybe uh, where I realized I could do that finally. Uh, and before that it was difficult. And a lot of people are still in that boat. I think it's just, it, even if you go to DEF CON, there will be all of those people who still have like a punk rock aesthetic and all of that. Um, but then you also have all of these other people that just look like everybody else in the world um, which I think is really cool, uh, where you just have everybody that's involved in, and they're like, yeah, yeah. What are you, where are you involved in? Yeah. I'm just like, I'm hacking cars right now, <laughs> or, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm picking, I'm learning how to pick locks and, you know, just your average people now, because it's again, technology is part of everyone's life. Now you didn't have to, you didn't have to have a special interest to get a computer or, you know, and use a computer and, and use technology. It's just sort of baked into society now. So we're getting down toward the end of the show, and um, this is where we ask, is there any questions that we haven't asked that you'd like us to have asked? Hmm. I mean, not really. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> I, I really liked, I liked going back to that, that Bristol talk in particular. because I, It I was had, a great talk. It was a I great know, talk. Thank you. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's still online. We should put it in the show notes because it was good. Are there oh, questions that we asked you wish we hadn't? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it would be rather we hadn't asked. Well, here's here's one. Um, that was like I'm guessing it was it was pre-pandemic, so I guess it was 19, something like that, uh, yeah. eight, 18 or 19. Um, so like four or five years ago, um, four or five years from now, where are we at? Where where is Purism at? Have you added other things to the product line? Would because you're in a, you're in a manufacturing business. You've got a fairly stable kind of client base, I imagine, but you want to grow. Wait, where's it going? Where's the, the yeah. field going as it were? I mean, if I'm, if I'm going, if I'm going by the past couple of years and also where, you know, kind of what we're trying to build toward and the changes like that we've incrementally made, I think I see us in, let's say five years within the next five years. I mean, we, 
trying to have bring more and more um, production. I mean, we've been trying for a while to do do more in the U.S. and do more in our in in facilities in the U.S. as we can, because there's a lot of benefits to that. Just from a supply chain standpoint, having things um, having manufacturing right next to fulfillment. So you don't have to ship things across the country or across the world from one factory to another is, is pretty beneficial for a lot of reasons. Um, I see us wanting to do more of that. I'm, I'm interested to see where some of these alternative architectures uh, go, CPU architectures go, you know, um, arm and risk five and, and a lot of others like that. They're not in many cases, they're just now sort of on the cusp of being able to offer a counterpart with enough resources. I mean, we've seen Apple go down that road uh, recently where they, where they now have a, again, <laughs> have an alternative to uh, Intel that is working on a, in a desktop form factor, like in a laptop form factor. I would like this. I would like to see um, us have something like that, but that is free. Uh, every step of the way, when we try to do it, when we do a new product, our goal is to make it more free than the previous iteration whenever possible. Um, and sometimes that's, it's, it's incredibly challenging because so much of, in, in particular in hardware, there's this assumption that everything will be closed. Um, and if it's open, it's sort of locked in to like a particular kernel version, for instance, like a lot of ARM devices, for instance. It, it sort of works. There's some proprietary drivers, but you have to stick with this kernel version for the life of the product and then it's disposable. So I guess in five years, I'd like to see us, of course, have a wide product line similar to what we do now. I would like to see us expand our services offerings more. I think we've talked about the benefit of having um, open standards. And I I would like to see us offer more um, of those kinds of services. We, off, we already offer some like a like a social social media, like a Mastodon instance and chat and things like that. I would like to see us do more of those just so that people have an alternative that they can choose that is supported if they don't want to host it themselves. If they do, then they can, of course, host it themselves too. And in fact, one of the things that we've wanted to do that we just haven't been able to get the resources together to do it is to make all of the services that we offer also have very simple recipes so someone could host it themselves if they chose to, if they wanted to go to the effort. Um, I, we want to sort of help enable people to do that, that want that, because it's, you know, our goal has never been to lock people in to what we're doing. You know, I've spent so much time thinking about security measures um, in the context of, well, if I do it this way, that's sort of the industry standard way, that means that I'm in purism or holding their keys, you know, for them. And they have to come to us for permission for things. And I never really liked that. And so I end up having to reject a lot of that. And so um, same goes for services. You know, we, if you want us to host a service for you, that's great, but we would love for you to have the capability to do it yourself too. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess for the future, I would love to see more uh, more like convergence. I guess because that's just what I'm all about right now. I, I love uh, the the ability to have a single device that you that just you follows you everywhere and has all of your data on it and has all of your you know all of your apps and everything is very convenient. Um, I'd like to see us do more with that. I guess um, and then have future products ultimately that. Um, possibly on architectures or, or on, you know, Intel architectures that are freer, they're starting to open up some of their stuff as well. Uh, but uh, on architectures that allow us to have, you know, full free software, both on software drivers and the firmware. Well, that's great. And, uh, and we are in fact now out of time. Um, 
last two questions, uh, quick and easy to answer, and you've been here before and you have answered this before, but why not? It's remedial. Um, your favorite text editor in scripting language. All right. So um, I'm a, I'm a long-term, long-time VI person. I use mm-hmm. VI and Vim in particular. Um, everything I do is based on those key bindings. I climbed a learning curve forever ago and never looking back. All of my books and all of my magazine articles are written in Vim first before they go into whatever the layout program that the publisher uses. So that's all done in Vim. Uh, so that's that. Uh, what was the second one? Uh, the scripting, uh, scripting. scripting yeah. language. Uh, if you were to ask me 10, 15 years ago, it would be Perl, but you know, that's, that's fallen out of favor these days. That just sort of shows my age. Uh, so honestly, honestly, a lot of, uh, I do a lot in bash really like my, I do tons of stuff in bash. In fact, a lot of pure boot, which is our uh, like security, like tamper resistant boot firmware, the user space of that, a lot of the heavy lifting is done with bash, which maybe not a lot of people realize, but a lot of it is bash, which is kind of interesting. And for those who want to know more about bash, we had Brian Fox on the show sometime in the last year. Good show. Good show for that too. Bash gets a lot of, a lot of love, actually. That's not, you're not the only one to answer that. So it's been great having you on the show, Kyle. And I, and thank you for kind of coming in. We had to, we had a, a bit of a scheduled juggle that we had to do and, and, uh, and needed somebody today. And I knew you were good and you paid off. So thanks a lot for being here. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for, for inviting me. So Sean. Yeah. <laughs> That was good. We, of course, we expected that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Kyle's a good friend of mine too. So yeah, this was yeah a, he's a friend. It was pretty easy to touch. It was, it's kind of hard not to uh, maybe get too friendly, like pick on him about stuff. You know, that that might not be appropriate if I'm picking on him for like his uh, posing in his uh, pirate shirt. And I mean, that was his profile pic <laughs> for the longest time, but now he's like the president of a company. I guess we all grew up, but uh, no, Kyle's great. He's, you know, something that you, you might not, might not be able to tell, but he's one of the, if not the most intelligent and smart people that I know. And, uh, he comes across as really humble, which is, which is, uh, a credit to him because, uh, I do system administration for a living and I often use Kyle's books, uh, if I have to figure something out because he's just, yeah, he's, he's incredible. So um happy for to those familiar with, with Dune. Uh, he's a mentat, you know, the mentat is like the smart guy you went to for, you know, to figure some stuff out or, you know, like Dr. Spock, maybe in a way and uh, in the Star Trek series, but, but the mentat, I think is closer to it. Um, yeah. No, he's su- super smart and, and pretty much pick a topic and, and he'll be able to hold forth on it. And yeah, we didn't get to talk about, I mean, weaving, he's a, he has a loom. He, I mean, he just does everything. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. Well, well, next time we'll get, we'll get, to, we'll, we'll get to that too. So, so what do you got to plug? Oh, uh, not too much. I mean, you mentioned bash. So if you go to my YouTube channel, there's a, there's a bash uh, playlist there. Uh, to learn some bash stuff if you're interested in that. And uh, yeah, just been, uh, been focusing on, Oh, there's me. I'm right on the yeah. screen. Oh, I don't have green hair. That's it's been a while. So um, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it. Just my YouTube channel and that kind of stuff. You've kind of got brown side or blonde sidewalls going on there. Over your, yeah. Your I, uh, it's like you've been upside I, down like an Easter egg, you know, uh, it's uh, true. Like somebody dipped me and then uh, didn't get, <laughs> get my head under far enough 
I don't know what that <laughs> says about whoever dipped me. It was myself. But, uh, yeah, i just uh, looking to get the top, and it kind of got down for Do you do it so. yourself, or do, 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 do you have salon help uh, to, uh, this, to get that this, look? Most recent time I did myself, uh, my daughter, the one who I, you know, originally dyed my hair to support has done it the past few times, like bleached it out and then made it green. But this time I, I did the the bleaching and the greening myself, which explains the lack of, uh, <laughs> of uniformity. It does not look like a professional job. <laughs> Very few things in my life look professional. So. <laughs> well, yeah, your background there does. Uh, and yeah, actually. <laughs> A messy background. You don't have one though, but yeah. Well, this has been great. And um, so next week we have uh, uh, Tim Pozar and Brian David coming back. Um, we were on radio and the legacy of radio and audio and a lot of interesting stuff. We had a very long list of things we wanted to cover. This is back in December or November, and yeah, I was the co-host, and I was you were out the of co-host my for that. So, so there we are, and and um, and we couldn't get through all of it, and so we said, "Got to come back." And so they are; they're coming back next week. So, so Very that'll cool. be that'll be the topic then. So, we will see you then next week. This is I'm Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly. See you then. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the internet, but your game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. But you already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow has a show dedicated to it, The Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there.